From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. There are and there will be many investigations into what went wrong in Hawaii in August of 2023, when dry conditions, strong winds, and apparently some downed power lines triggered a rapidly moving conflagration that became the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century. There are a lot of questions that need to be answered, like why the island siren system wasn't used to cue evacuations, and why water lines run dry so quickly, and whether a faster response from the mainland could have helped in the immediate aftermath of the blazes. Journalists will certainly continue to look for those answers. Climate scientists will as well. And emergency management researchers will take a longer look trying to piece together what went wrong and whether it could have been avoided. And state leaders in Hawaii will, of course, also investigate. But there may not ever be a federal investigation into what happened in Hawaii, and that's because the United States doesn't have an agency dedicated to identifying what went wrong in the wake of disasters like this. We do have an agency that does somewhat similar work. When planes crash or trains derail, the National Transportation Safety Board investigates, determines the probable causes of the accident, and issues safety recommendations. They do this even if the disaster caused no deaths or even if no one was injured. But we don't have that sort of federal oversight for far costlier disasters. And some researchers have said that one consequence is that we keep making the same mistakes over and over again with deadly consequences. Among those who have been calling for a National Disaster Safety Board is Samantha Montano, who is an assistant professor of emergency management at Massachusetts Maritime Academy and the author of the book Disasterology, Dispatches from the Frontlines of the Climate Crisis. Samantha Montano, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Samantha, the fires in Maui, followed by just five years, the campfire in California, which at that point was the deadliest wildfire in the past century. We have seen wildfires increase in frequency and intensity across the United States. But it doesn't seem like much has changed in terms of how we are preparing for these and how we get ready for the response we're sort of resigned ourselves to this fate, and it seems like this is sort of what we do when it comes to natural disasters of all sorts. Yeah, so our emergency management system in the past several years has become somewhat overwhelmed by all of the different disasters that it is being uh, forced to manage. And as a result of that, I think what a lot of people are kind of noticing is that we are perpetually in this state of response and recovery. And the work that we do to mitigate our risk, try and prevent disasters from happening, the things we do to prepare for them have kind of had to take a bit of a back seat. And like FEMA comes in, we all hear about this, right? FEMA comes in and it responds, it helps stabilize. But that's such a big effort in and of itself that there's really never been this complementary effort, maybe with a separate agency that says, let's see what we can do to get ready to prepare to make sure that we can mitigate these things. And I mean, natural disasters are always going to happen, but and may happen increasingly under climate warming. But 
We don't have anybody in the federal government who's doing that right now. That's right. Well, FEMA, when they were created in 1979, were given the mission of doing comprehensive emergency management, which means doing not only response and recovery, but also doing mitigation and preparedness. Um, and so FEMA does mitigation and preparedness all of the time. We're um, federally, uh, we're putting more money towards mitigation now than we ever have before. The issue is that we're still being kind of reactive in our approach. Like we're still doing some mitigation and preparedness. We're just not doing anywhere near enough of it. And as our risk increases across the country, those mitigation and preparedness efforts are not at all keeping up. One of the things that I think is important in this conversation is that the deadliest natural disasters aren't simply a result of, you know, nature being nature. The fires in Hawaii, for instance, appear to have been caused by downed power lines, and they were exacerbated by human decisions about water use over many decades leading up to that really terrible disaster. Uh, Hurricane Katrina, uh, which is a disaster that you're well familiar with, was such a disaster, not simply because the storm was so big, but because the man-made levees failed. And These are, I think, important decisions. These aren't just acts of God. Right. Yeah. You know, historically, we tended to call disasters acts of God kind of more recently. They've been referred to as natural disasters. You know, in research, we tend to not use the term natural disaster just by the definition of what a disaster is. It's this interaction between a hazard, something like a fire and us. And it's that us part of that equation that kind of takes the naturalness out of any disaster. Um, You know, there are decisions that have been made, policy decisions that are made, mistakes made in a response that lead to that hazard crossing that threshold and becoming a disaster. And so for us in emergency management, understanding the human responsibility and the human involvement in causing these events is really critical because it's those decisions, those policy decisions that are made that we could change and make different policy decisions to try and prevent these disasters from happening. And of course, policy comes from people and in this nation and many others, you know, there's a democratic process, a democratic decision making. And that's all about how the stories are told and how the prioritization of ideas happens as a result of those stories. So I'm wondering if maybe we think of those things disasters in these sorts of ways, like acts of God, natural disasters it makes it feel like there's nothing we can do or nothing that could have been done in advance. And so instead of looking at the situation and going, what can we learn from this? We rush into reconstruction. Yeah, exactly. This is a kind of the standard pattern that we see after a disaster, right? We're, you know, in this 24-7 news cycle as the response is unfolding. And then as life-saving measures kind of come to an end, we Um, see that a lot of that media coverage goes away, a lot of the attention that that community has dissipates as they move throughout what is always a very long and complicated and difficult recovery. And I think that's true of kind of politicians' attention spans uh, with emergency management as well. They're kind of tend to be there more often during the response. They're there kind of 
periodically throughout the recovery, and then that's it. Um, and historically, emergency management has been a very unpopular area among um, policy and, and politicians because uh, it tends to be relatively expensive. Um, when we're talking about doing things to prevent disasters ahead of time, oftentimes that may go against financial interests or it may um, you know, involve doing something that is going to take decades for us to actually see payoff. Um, so it doesn't really align with our kind of typical uh, cycle that politicians are operating on. Yeah, like decades is a lot longer than the next, you know, two years for a congressperson, for the next six years for a senator, for the next four years for a president, right? Like that's a long-term investment that may not pay off until your constituents, are, a lot of them are gone. That's That's a hard case to make, I assume. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to Congress hypothetically asking for a billion dollars to build, uh, you know, a new levy system around your community, you know, that it's going to take probably a decade before you even start building and probably many more decades for that levy to actually pay off in terms of preventing a flood. And by then, you know, the politician who pushed for that billion dollars is already going to have moved on. And we need to know what to build. We need to know what to do to mitigate ahead of time. So this is sort of where the National Disaster Safety Board would presumably come in. This would be an agency that would systematically look at all of these disasters and the dimensions of these disasters and ask those questions and make those recommendations. I'm going to wave a magic wand here, Samantha. I'm going to put you in charge of setting this up. What would it look like at its best? Yeah, I mean, I think this would be um, modeled closely after um, the Transportation Safety Board that you mentioned, Um, but I think it would be an independent body that uh, investigates events after they happen. So they would be going in, for example, following the fires on Maui, leading an investigation, looking not only at things like the cause of the fire, but really pulling apart the actual response, looking at the preparedness efforts and the mitigation efforts that had been done ahead of time, and looking to see where there were gaps uh, in how that response unfolded uh, with the purpose of compiling those findings into recommendations for Congress, potentially for other levels of government in terms of what needs to be changed to prevent this from happening again. What can we do with a federal agency that we can't do piecemeal? I mean, we, you know, we do investigate things, states investigate and journalists investigate and academics investigate. Sometimes the federal government will dip in and look into these things. But what what would this really allow for? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things is that this needs to be led by emergency management experts, right? And at various points, you know, you'll need to pull in an engineering expert or a fire expert or, you know, other other areas of expertise. 
But I think really to center this among emergency management experts is really critical. When you look at other investigations that have been done by whether, you know, by a congressional commission or by a state or an outside consulting agency, after other disasters, what you tend to see is kind of a wild misunderstanding of our emergency management system. And so they'll identify problems um, that aren't actually the the cause of what happened, or um, are, they kind of misidentify those causes. And so the findings of those studies, if anybody acts on them, isn't really addressing the root problems that led to the response unfolding in the way it did. As you've noted earlier, these are really legally and ethically complicated matters. There are a lot of different stakeholders, some who would be in conflict with one another. Can you talk about those sorts of stumbling blocks? Yeah. So, you know, anytime we are responding to a major disaster, you have you know, hundreds, oftentimes thousands of different agencies and groups that are in some way involved in those responses and in those recoveries. And so part of this kind of investigative piece is making sure that we understand those different stakeholder groups, the different priorities and perspectives that they have, um, and how that is influencing the work that they do in response and recovery. I think in past investigations, we've seen a real oversimplification of those stakeholder groups, of those decision-making that's happening within all of these diverse organizations. And the reality is, is that these responses are incredibly complex and that it takes time and it takes resources to really go through and track down how decisions were made and what led to those decisions being made. Reflecting on what we've seen in Hawaii, uh, Craig Fugate, who ran FEMA under President Obama, has said that as much as people want to make this out to be a singular isolated event, that's just unimaginable. It's something that we can well imagine and should be imagining in a lot more places. You've expressed similar sentiments. You've said that we really shouldn't be surprised by these events. And yet we do seem to keep getting caught off guard by them. Why? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to these issues with the lack of resources that are being made available for preparedness and mitigation. I mean, even something like the pandemic, FEMA had a scenario in their you know national risk assessment that looked incredibly similar to what unfolded with COVID. It, it, we shouldn't be getting caught off guard by a, a hurricane affecting Florida or uh, you know, flooding in the Midwest. So I think where there there's that element of surprise, it's that the public isn't well educated on those risks, um, that journalists maybe aren't always as educated on those risks. And so as these events unfold, there is this element of, oh, this is surprising. One of the wrinkles in disaster preparedness and response that I'd like to talk to you about because I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about this issue, is that much of the communications infrastructure and strategy has been outsourced. And for the past decade, the go-to place was Twitter. And under the new leadership of that company, the cracks in that strategy of using a private company to send vital disaster information are really starting to show. But we don't have a great alternative for this right now, right? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, this is one of the kind of scarier things I think facing emergency management right now is that for over the past decade, we have really relied on Twitter as a place not only for emergency managers to communicate with the public, but also a place where the public can share what they are seeing and what's happening on the ground. I mean, emergency management agencies across the country you know, keep TweetDeck up in the middle of a response so that they're getting live input from the public over, you know, where flooding is happening or where down trees are. And in the absence of Twitter, there really isn't another social media app that is structured in a way and has kind of the right algorithm to be able to step in and fill this gap that Twitter was serving. And sometimes when I say this, people say, well, we didn't used to have Twitter, so we'll just go back to the way it was. That's a nice idea. But unfortunately, the way we used to do this was through um, local media coverage. And as you are well aware, I'm sure, we've just seen this complete gutting of local media across the country. That capacity just isn't there to really fill the gap uh, to the extent that we would need to be able to kind of make up for these changes that we're seeing on Twitter. You said last year that depending on what direction Twitter goes, there is a potential for some huge gaps in how emergency management unfolds. A uh, little time has passed now, and I'm wondering how close to the trajectory of your worst fears are we? Um, I I think that one of the biggest fears that I and other people in emergency management have is this issue of misinformation. Twitter certainly isn't alone here. TikTok is right behind it in terms of how quickly misinformation can spread in a crisis. But, you know, those safeguards that Twitter had prior to Musk taking over really helped stem the misinformation on Twitter in the midst of a response, right? It wasn't perfect, but there were, you know, there was verification and there was reporting, and, you know, all of these other kind of safety measures in place to make sure that the information going out was accurate. And in the past couple of major disasters, you can see how quickly misinformation is spreading through Twitter, how quickly that misinformation jumps to the top of the feed. And as those other kind of security measures are stripped away, you're starting to see how uh, you're starting to see Twitter use its usefulness in these breaking news kind of moments. This situation has really exacerbated a problem that we have seen again and again, which is a disconnect that you write about in your book. In August of 2017, you were in Maine, where you grew up, when you heard about Hurricane Harvey, and you had just finished writing your dissertation on flooding on that exact part of Texas that was about to be affected by this gigantic storm. So you were particularly attuned to the damage that was coming days before it came, and yet the people on the ground hadn't had enough time or hadn't been convinced enough by the warnings to evacuate. 
Yeah, well, you know, Harvey was a particularly tough situation. In Southeast Texas, they had had several presidentially declared disasters in the two years leading up to Harvey. So there had already been, you know, extensive flooding um, throughout various parts of Houston and, and kind of the surrounding communities. And so we were going into Harvey with a lot of people whose house houses were half rebuilt or had not yet been rebuilt from the last flood um, and had already, you know, been through the trauma of these multiple floods. One of the really massive challenges with Houston in particular is that you, it's difficult, if not impossible, to evacuate all of Houston in the time frame that you have for a hurricane coming. Um, and, you know, in maybe a perfect world, you would have forecasting that was good enough to be able to evacuate specific neighborhoods ahead of time. Um, that's effectively what ended up happening during Harvey is as rain fell, um, there were evacuations during the storms of certain neighborhoods um, as we were able to see kind of where the water was falling. How helpful would it have been in that storm and the many other disasters that you studied over your career to have had something like a national disaster safety board that had quantitatively gone through all of these past disasters and issued uh, summary findings and recommendations basically developing the data that we need? How much does that change the situation? I mean, I think it would have made a huge difference for future storms. Um, I think one, one thing that's really important to understand here is, so I have my doctorate in emergency management. I am one of probably 40 to 50 people in the United States that has an actual doctoral degree in emergency management. There are other people in other disciplines that study disasters, but emergency management specifically is a very kind of niche discipline. And it's a relatively new discipline. We're only like 20 years old or so. There are like more professional rodeo clowns than... <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I, I say it's not even one of us per state, right? So we could theoretically go and try to study every disaster that happens, but there just aren't enough of us to do that, right? Um, and so what the National Disaster Safety Board does is help us with this data collection. It gives us a structure. It gives us resources to be able to go into these communities and run these studies that right now we would like to do, but just simply don't have the people or the funding to be able to do. One of the challenges is that we haven't yet done a great job of making the act of being an emergency manager tangible by virtue of the fact that there's not many of you folks. Uh, like in the same way that being a teacher or a police officer or a firefighter is tangible. And you've written that when you tell people that you do emergency management, their eyes sort of glaze over. And so you started telling people instead that you are 
a disasterologist. <laughs> I did. Yeah. So when I was in grad school studying emergency management, like you said, nobody really knew what that meant. Um, and so I kind of dug out this word disasterology from some old research decades ago um, and started just using the term disasterologist. And it's, uh, you know, it's an easy to understand term, right? Like, oh, you study disasters. Okay, I get it. I've been asking this question a lot lately to researchers from all sorts of disciplines. Are you optimistic? Do you think that we'll get to a place where... For instance, we have something like a National Disaster Safety Board that is helping to inform policy that is better aligned to disaster preparedness and response. And then, ergo, we are doing this better as a nation. Um, well, it depends on the day of whether I'm optimistic <laughs> or pessimistic, honestly. Um, I mean, I do think something like the National Disaster Safety Board, I do think that is within our grasp. Do I think that we are going to be successful in passing national comprehensive emergency management reform in the way that we really need it to be able to manage our increasing risk across the country? I don't know. That That's a tougher one for me to see kind of the path forward. I'm still going to work every day on making that happen. Um, but it is, I think, important for people to understand that is a difficult path that we're trying to walk down. You mentioned that we need a better term for people in practice. Do you have any ideas like tragedy, oh trooper, <laughs> cataclysm, combatant? Um, I don't know. I feel like you have to ask the emergency managers about that one. That's Samantha Montano. She is a disasterologist at Massachusetts Maritime Academy and the author of the book, Disasterology, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. Samantha Montano, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts, and however you listen, please consider giving your support to public radio. You can do that at donate.nprstations.org UPR. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.